Mike, my my eyebrows were raised from the tip yesterday, and uh, I've, I've watched every game your team has played now for these last two years. I don't know if I've seen them ever play, just so locked in from the get-go yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday was a special day, wasn't it? It was, and let's, let's peel that back and go, hey, what was different about yesterday than all the other days? And it was, there was a line of people out there at 1 o'clock waiting to get in when the doors open and buy tickets, and there were... You know, it felt to me like five or 6,000 people in there uh, calling the hogs spontaneously. So that was the difference. It's the same team, same kids. I can assure you the same plays. I may or may not have had on some new socks. But other than that, it was just a crowd, Phil. It was awesome. Your socks look good, by the way. I did notice those. Thanks. Uh, Thanks. Yeah, that's, that's a, that was a high-level sock game. Very high level sock, all the way up to the knees. Uh, Fifteen three pointers made. Now you're you're a team. This is a team that it's it's not that you live and die on the threes, but when you when you start hitting them, things really change. And, and to me, that's been one of the things about the run of the postseason in Greenville and also uh, in in the NIT. You guys are shooting thirty nine percent from behind the arc. Yeah. And you and I have talked about you know, when those shots start going down, how the endorphins start going through your body, and it just creates it creates this aura of positivity around the team, and they've just run with it. Has the three-point shot been the key to how this team has played in March? It has. You know, it, what it does and what you're talking about there is when, when you're making those shots, it keeps people from flooding in there in the lane. And, you know, the thing that I don't think the casual observer would probably notice, but like, you know, about four or five games in a row, Chelsea had had two or three charges because people were just running in there and jumping underneath her because they weren't going to respect the three-point shot because we were only shooting around 29%. So when that three-point shot goes in, now the driving lanes are wide open. And then you, the coach starts yelling at you about drives, and then you come off and drive, and then you kick it to – you know, toll free and Jalen Mason and Bailey and everybody's mouth hitting threes. So it does spawn that. And then our defense feeds off our offense. I know, you know, programs do it a lot of different ways, but for us, our defense the last two games has been really, really good, especially yesterday. UAB is one of the better offensive teams in the country. And I, I thought we, as you said from the get go, just really forced them to not look that way. You know, Alexis Tolfrey sat with me after the game on, on the postgame show, and she reiterated exactly what she said. We can look at all the, you know, 100 points is always going to be impressive. School record 15 threes, hit 50% of them, shot 51% for the game. But Alexis pointed out specifically that it was defense turning into offense, and that just has something to do with the energy that a team plays with, and that's what I saw last night too. Yeah, that happened. And, and Coach Schaefer had... He was, had really dissected their offense, and you know we try to be very simplistic. And some games it's harder than others, but he was able to pinpoint it down to one thing. And he told screeners, he said, "If if your girl's setting a screen, don't worry about her. Backs to the play. They don't even look for that person as an option. Get off and help us in some shape, form, or fashion. Either <clears throat> clog the cutting lane or, or give some ball pressure." And I thought that one very very simplistic. Um, phrase that the kids were able to keep in the back of their mind and then he told them to keep their hand above the ball on shooters and those two little simple two-word phrases i thought were the key to us really again making a very very good offensive team look uh, anemic at times mike neighbors arkansas women's basketball coach our guest here in halftime mike so you guys beat houston in ot then you blast uab how do you get your girls from not reading their own 
press clippings heading into Thursday night's game against TCU? Well, they're going to uh, because that's just part of our uh, new new normal. Uh, social media is out there, but this group's very self-aware. We, we've had uh, – I think I let them read it. We don't try to shy away from that stuff, embrace it. Uh, we've had to deal with times when it wasn't always positive. So I think you got to let them enjoy the highs with the lows. Our, our group takes it pretty well. Um, and and I, I don't worry about it too much. Uh, you'll start to see it. If it starts to become a problem, we can always do some things. But so far, Ty, it, it hasn't even been a problem. They, they keep themselves pretty grounded. Um, they give each other a hard time with the best of them. And uh, they, they keep themselves in check pretty good around there. Mike, you shared a unique story back when you were at Washington where you were dealing with some injuries, and you didn't practice a lot. I found that, that story you shared fascinating. Do you think a lot of coaches overcoach and overpractice in basketball today? Yeah, no question. I mean, I was guilty of it for a long time and may still be at times, but you know, I think we do so many things out of tradition, and I call it the curse of the clinic. You know, uh, you go to a clinic and – what happens is these, these clinics have people in who have won at a really high level for a number of years, and we all try to copy what they did. And for a long time, that's what you do. You know, you, you get that fear of if we're not in the gym, somebody else is somewhere, and when we show up, they're going to beat us. And I, I just don't think there's any evidence of that. I, uh, the evidence that I've seen is the team that's, that's rested and most prepared. Uh, you can be overprepared, you know. They, I think somebody called it analysis or pre- Paralysis by analysis or something. They overthink it. So um, it's worked for us. It may not work for everybody. I know there's a lot of different ways to win at this game. But um, with the group that we've had and the people that we bring into our locker room, the culture we try to surround them with, it tends to work. And until until it doesn't, um, again, this is, again, my six years as a head coach, and I was with Kevin McGuff for six years before that, and that's where a lot of this philosophy came from. Our team's always played better at the end of the year, always. And until that stops happening, I'm not going to mess with the results. And, um, you know, I'm going to listen to people, but I'm going to have a hard time being convinced that it's not the way to do it. Mike, I remember listening to a conversation you had with Bo a couple months back, and you talked about how you've kind of changed your pregame talk and you only write a few things on the board compared to what you used to when you used to fill the board. How do you balance changing and adjusting to how kids need to be coached today based on what you've coached so many times over the years? Like, how do you balance that? Well, I think you got to be, you got to talk to them and you got to get their opinions and their input. And and then you only give them as much as they need. Uh, You know, Phil's in there every game when I write stuff on the board. And sometimes it's one word and sometimes it's one sentence. Um, if we've done our work ahead of time, it should be very simple. Um, I took one year off and, and studied Steve Jobs and simplicity and how he tried to get everything down to its, the simplest form. And that makes it really hard on us coaches. And I think, like, again, I gave you that example of Coach Schaefer. You know, you, you could have come out there and, and put in 10 things we needed to do on defense when in all actuality, two through nine didn't matter as long as we got in the gaps and helped guard cutters. So start at the top, and if they need a second thing, maybe I'll tell them that in a timeout. But I'm, I'm not going to tell them that in a pregame. Um, you know, I, I think we all, because of tradition, everybody takes the court an hour before the game. Well, we're more like 40 minutes. Um, I don't stay in the locker room at halftime very long because 
again, it's let's make our adjustments and get out of there. Um, and this time of the year, I'll be honest, they make a lot of adjustments on their own based on what they're most comfortable doing. Like, they started switching screens at times last night, and we, we didn't even really talk about doing it, but they did it. And they know that I've got confidence in them, and I think that gives them some accountability. Uh, and I think over the course, we've played 36 games now, Phil. I know you feel like it because you've been at all of them, but yeah. you know that's a school record. Um, that's the most games that anybody's ever played, and our next game's going to be 37. So it, it's when you've been together that long, you got to learn to trust each other. Well, it's Thursday night against TCU, seven o'clock. I, I would anticipate you know, probably a larger crowd than you saw Sunday, maybe up, hope, hopefully over 4,000. And you, you talk about the idea of simplicity. When you're making fans of a program, the simple way to keep them is to win games and to play an exciting brand of basketball. And I feel like because this is the NIT and because you're playing home games instead of having to go on the road, and we touched on this in the post game last night, Mike, you're making fans of this program that yeah. might not have experienced the excitement if you'd have been in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody could argue that point, you know, especially, you know, you look at where we probably would have possibly been seated. We'd, we'd have been a couple of time zones away. They might not even be able to watch the game on TV. So, um, no, I, I think there's, you know, some invisible results out of this, you know, getting snubbed from the NCAAs and, and all that, the, number of people that we've seen and I again I don't know how we count bodies but I can tell you this I was with coach Blair back in the day here and when we had crowds that were that big we put 7,000 people on the box score it sounded like so it, I, I don't know sure. how all that gets done but that same crowd in 1999 and 2000 it, it had 7,000 on the box score not 3,900 so I don't care how many butts were in the seats they were loud they've made the difference for us in the Houston game that last defensive stop, that all of our energy came from the crowd. And then yesterday, we got a standing ovation 30 minutes before the game, Phil. I don't know if you were out there when we did our little walk that we do, but we got a standing ovation then, 30 minutes before tip-off from about 1,500 fans that were in there to get their seats early. So, man, I hope we can get as many people back. I know people are back from spring break. We're doing everything we can do on campus. We're, um, I have not – I have literally – not asked one particular person to come to a game in my two years so far being here, but I'm doing that this week. We need everybody there Thursday night, not only to help us win the game, but then if we were to win the game, to set that attendance number so high that the NIT would consider being able to host in the future. There's no doubt. What do you know about TCU, which is the opponent on uh, on Thursday night? Well, I've watched them a lot. Uh, you know, they're in the Big 12, so we get a lot of their TVs on crossovers, a lot of common opponents. Um, you know, very, very uh, talented. They've got two good post players, and their guards know how to play off those guys. So we've we struggled against teams that have had two good post players, so it would be a real challenge. Um, they're another team that's kind of playing with a little chip on their shoulder. They were one of those, you know, I think the NCAA called us the debatable eight uh, for getting one of those last spots in the NCAA tournament. So uh, also more proof that this um, NIT is not seeded. You know, we're, we're facing a team that was on the bubble of making the NCAA tournament in round three. So, um, I know both teams are very excited. We've got a lot of – we recruit a lot of the same kids. Obviously, our connection to Amber Ramirez, who transferred from there. So, uh, I'm anticipating uh, a pretty intense game come Thursday. 
Okay, before we let you go, Mike, I want you to help me settle an argument I'm having with a listener on my direct messages on Twitter. Earlier in the show, okay. I said I said the Bad News Bears, the original Bad News Bears with Walter Matthau is the best youth baseball movie. I got a listener that says Sandlot. I love the Sandlot, but I put it behind Bad News Bears with Walter Matthau. What do you say? I agree with you, Phil, and not just because I don't know who the caller is, but here's why, and it may be different for this caller, but for me, the Bad News Bears, there was like a little sense of uh, mystery around it because it had cussing in it, you know, and you had to sneak around to see it because my mom, growing up in Greenwood, Arkansas, we didn't get to see that version. So Bad News Bears will always have a little bit of sense of rebel to me over Sandlot. Um, but I will have to say this. Again, I may not be solving the argument. I agree with you the Bad News Bears is slightly ahead. But if one of them was on TBS and the other one was on TNT right now, I'd probably watch the Sandlot. Well, it's because there's the, the they would have to bleep out the cursing of the bad news. But look, when when the opening scene is there, the there head, is the, there is the that, that's it. Yeah, the the opening scene is the coach pouring whiskey into a Budweiser and then going to the little league field. I mean, you're talking about being a rebel. Uh, there's nothing more rebellious. <laughs> hey, I, hey, I was scared of Kelly Leak growing up. So I mean, I, I was just hoping Kelly Leak wouldn't show up. That kid. Uh, he scared me to death in my youth, but as no, Bad News Bears. Bendejo. <laughs> yeah, it's Bendejo. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, it, you know, it was. Um, it's one of those movies that's iconic for me because of the age I was at when I first saw it. Uh, and I think you got to put that in perspective when we're doing all these comparing movies. You got to you got to understand where those people were at when they saw it for the first time, but. I could probably be the prosecutor or the defense attorney in that in that case anytime, but I'm going with you, Bad News Bears. All right, I appreciate you, Mike. We'll let you go. See you Thursday night. Thanks so much. All right. Okay. All right. See you,